please uh, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5 with me. As, uh, as you're turning there to 1 John chapter 5, we're looking at verses 16 and 17 this morning. I uh, just want to, on behalf of the uh, staff, just, just thank you. Uh, it's, it's a joy uh, to be able to serve at, at Bethany Community Church. And I, I don't know if there's a way, I, I know it, it's, it's impossible to really convey what a blessing it is to be able to serve at Bethany. It's hard to describe, impossible to describe what, a, what an incredibly sweet ministry opportunity it is to, to be at this church. Uh, you're very kind to us, to our families, to each other. Uh, the church is at, at peace with itself by God's grace, and um, God, is, God is glorified as a result of, of your faithfulness to him. And so, so thank you for letting us be a part of it. First John, chapter 5, uh, we're going to study verses 16 and 17 this morning, but to kind of give us the, the context, I'm going to jump back up to verse 13 as, as John begins talking about prayer. And so if you're able to this morning, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. First John, chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, looking at verses 16 and 17 more specifically this morning. Here's what John says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. Then verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. You may be seated. May God encourage, strengthen, challenge, grow us as a result of hearing his word together. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for these words that are here in First John, uh, words that are not always easy to, to understand in, in your word, but uh, words that we trust will give us life and, and health and peace in, in you, and we pray that you would uh, help our hearts to be very open to what you're teaching us through these, these things. And we pray uh, again this morning for those who have proclaimed their, their faith in you through baptism, and we pray that we would all be challenged to grow closer to you as a result, and pray for them their faithfulness in you. We pray for those in our church who are getting ready to travel. Pray for those who are visiting with us this morning. We pray, uh, we think of those who are getting ready to go on mission trips and, and pray for their, their safety and well-being as well. And for the, the good news of your son Jesus to encourage us and encourage those throughout uh, the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you this morning uh, to tell me what tools God has used in, in your life to bring you closer to him, uh, what, what would you tell me? What, what instruments has God used in your life to grow you spiritually? Maybe some of you would, would talk about a, a small group Bible study that God used in your life to help you understand him and his word more, more fully. My wife would tell you about a time in junior high where she was in a small group Bible study and just her ability to to read and understand and know God's Word was really, was really challenged by that Bible study. Maybe some of you would mention a time of, of difficulty or trial 
God brought you into a season of hardship, and as you found yourself in that season of hardship, there was a, an instrument, a loving, sovereign God used to draw you closer to himself. And maybe some of you would, would talk about a sermon you heard on, I don't know, December 28th, just try to date there, 2014, it just, boom, blew your mind, and I challenged and grew you through that. What instruments has God, a sovereign, loving God, used to, to grow you spiritually? And as I think about my own life, I, I could say all those things, that God's used those in seasons of my life. But there's two other things that God has, has used to really grow me spiritually. And I just want to share, with those, share those with you this morning. Uh, one of the things that God has used in my life, he's, he's done on, on several occasions, is when people have come up to me, and have just told me, hey, Daniel, uh, I, I want you to know that I'm praying for you that God would, would keep you from sin. And they haven't come up and said, hey, Daniel, uh, I'm praying that because I think you're a real wretch. And, uh, you know, everyone knows that. And I'm praying for you that, you know, not like that. But just, just very sincerely, hey, I, I know that you're a human being. I know what the deceitfulness of sin is in, in the life of a person. I'm just praying that God protects you from that. Because I know how detrimental sin would be to your life, to the health of this church. And so I want you to know I love you and I'm praying for you. That's been incredibly influential in ways I don't even know, I'm sure. Another thing God has used in my life at times is there, there have been times where people, again, people I love, people who love me, ha- have come to me and have just kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, uh, Daniel, um, not easy to, to maybe say this to you, but um, I, I'm seeing this in your life. I don't know for sure what this means, but I'm, I'm seeing this, this thing in your life, and I know that this is what God's Word says, and, and this thing in your life seems to be contrary to, to God's Word and what His will for your life would be. Uh, help me understand. How are you doing with that? Is, is, is what I seen, is, am I correct in what I think that I'm seeing, and, and how can I help you live your life in conformity to what God's Word says? That has happened on several occasions, that must have been very difficult for the people who came to me to say that to me. But I'll tell you this, it has profoundly, profoundly impacted my life and my spiritual growth. Now, I'm guessing that some of you, as you sit here this morning, can, can think of people that you love who are struggling with sin. Maybe it's, maybe it's some big sin issue. Maybe there's someone in your life that you love and, and this person is, is not being faithful to their marriage vows. Or maybe they're engaged in some sort of illegal activity. It just seems like a really big, glaring sin. They know it. Everybody knows it. And you're, you, you have a feeling of hopelessness as you think about that aspect of their life because you're not quite sure what to do with that. But maybe it's also uh, some smaller, seemingly smaller issues. And you've been around uh, family and friends over this holiday season, and you've had conversations with people, and there's some things that you see in the lives of people you love, and you're not sure exactly what to do with some of the things you're seeing in their life because you know that some of the things that you're seeing in their life are, are things that will not bring them joy, that will not allow them to experience the fullness of delight in God. And so you're wondering, how in the world do I deal with this? Maybe, it's a, maybe you're a young person and there's a, a friend you have that's pursuing a relationship and you know this relationship is not a healthy relationship. This relationship is not a thing that's going to bring glory to God. And you're wondering, how do I, how do I deal with this? Or maybe 
uh, maybe you're, you, have, you have a friend and as you've had conversations with them over the last few days or weeks or whatever, and you just, as you talk with them, you realize, boy, um, so much of the things that they're passionate about are just, just worldly things. There seems to be a real love of, of, of physical things, maybe how they look or dress or just materialism in general. And you're like, I, I, how do I talk about that with them? What do I do? How do I care for them? Or maybe you have a friend who's in a marriage relationship and you look at how he's, he's treating his wife and, and his kids and boy, you just, you just, as you think about that, it grieves you because you know that his wife and his children and he are not experiencing joy in the Lord because, because of the, some of the ways that this guy's treating his family. How do you deal with that? The danger, of course, can be to, to come across as judgmental as you talk with a person and come across as this idea that I have everything together and so I want to talk to you about what a terrible person you are. You know that's not the way to deal with it. You don't want to just ignore things you see in other people's life and you don't want to be harsh and turn people off. How do you deal with, with, with sin that you see in the lives of other people? Because here's the bottom line, right, guys? There's not a single person in this room who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who, who isn't still going to struggle with, with sin. And if we, as we've talked about, as we've gone through First John, if we believe that we are in a covenant relationship with one another, we have a responsibility to one another to encourage one another to, to love and good deeds, if I have an obligation to be in a loving relationship with you, then there's a challenge that is presented before me, and that challenge is, how do I effectively deal with the sin that I find in, in my life and the lives of others who I love? How do I deal with that? This passage in 1 John that we're looking at this morning, verses 16 and 17, it's, it's kind of a strange combination of a really easy passage and a really, really difficult passage, right? I mean, it's, it's easy in the sense that what John is saying is, is really, really clear in terms of the big idea you read this, what does John want us to do as a result of reading these verses? Well, the, the central theme that he's getting at is, look, uh, if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to pray that God would deliver them from sin. Very easy, big idea, right? If you love the brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to pray that God would deliver them from sin, that God would grant them life. That's, that's the, the big picture, crystal clear. But boy, there's also some things in these verses that are a little less clear. And uh, just between us, there are going to be some times this morning where you're going to hear me say the words, I don't know, which are not easy for me to say, but I think the wisest thing to say in some of the things that are here. So there's a lot to get to, okay? The question that I want to kind of be in the forefront of your mind is, um, how do I effectively care for a brother or sister who's, who's struggling with sin, which in other words is everyone in this room, how do I effectively care for a brother or sister who's struggling with sin? We're going to look at six ways. There's a lot to get to, but I didn't preach first service, so I feel like I have some extra time this service to, uh, I, want to get, I want you to get your full money's worth, and so well, we got to go ahead and uh, dig into this thing. Six ways. Here's the first way. How do I effectively care for my brothers and sisters First of all is this, I love them, right? I love my brothers and sisters. Now, I think we need to remember the context of what's taking place as we come to verses 16 and 17. 
Remember, the whole book of 1 John has been about fellowship. How can I know that I'm in fellowship with God, and how can I know that I'm in fellowship with other believers? And John has given us three tests by which we can know whether we're in fellowship with God, whether we're in fellowship with other believers. Remember that? First of all, he gave us the truth test. A person needs to believe certain things about who Jesus Christ is and how he's dealt with sin. There's that truth test. There's also an obedience test. A person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, believed that he is who he says he is. He's fully God, fully man, who's dealt with our sin once and for all. A person who believes that has had their heart transformed by the gospel and they are going to follow the obedience test. There are going to be things about their life that are different as a result of believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then what's the last test that John gave us as we've gone through 1 John? There's the truth test, there's the obedience test, and what's the last test? It's the love test. Remember? There are things that are going to be true of the way that we treat each other that are true because we are truly in fellowship with God and truly in fellowship with his children. So, for example, you come to chapter 3, and he, he talks about the love that we're to have one another. He says in verse 11, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he comes to verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, listen to what he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So, how can I effectively care for my brothers and sisters when it comes to the area of of sin? It begins by me loving them. The idea is that there exists, in the context of this relationship, a a loving foundation. And what John is saying here, what he said throughout this entire epistle, is that love is not just some sort of emotional feeling that we have for one another. Loving you isn't just saying the words, I love you. John says that love is characterized by action. Love means that I sacrificially lay down my life for your eternal benefit. And so if we're going to have a church culture in which we can talk honestly and openly about the struggles that we have and the struggles that we see in other people's lives, there has to be a foundation of love. My actions towards you need to be characterized by sacrificial commitment. You see it in the words that I say to you. You see it in the words that I don't say about you to other people. You see it in the way that I physically care for you. You see it in the way that my heart attitude is ready to forgive you. We've talked about all sorts of practical ways that this love for each other is manifested as we've gone through 1 John. And if that doesn't exist, you cannot have a culture. Hear me carefully. If that foundation of sacrificial love does not exist within the context of this church, we cannot care for one another when it comes to the area of sin. I can remember uh, I was on staff at uh, Bethany Baptist Church from 2000 to 2008. And there'd be several occasions, this happened on multiple times, where there'd be some sort of issue that had happened with one of the youth kids, and I, I needed to talk to the parents, and so I'd, I'd, I'd have this meeting with the parents, and we'd, we'd get in there, and we'd, we'd start talking, and, and uh, it wouldn't go well, like, at all, because I'd, I'd kind of, as we talk about it, we'd, we'd kind of have to mention some of the things that maybe the parents weren't doing well, and it was like I had taken a 
a big pointy stick and just poked them in the eye. I mean, it was just incredibly painful and offensive and just, it went poorly. Very poorly. I know it's hard to imagine me offending someone, but it happened. And then, this, I'm, I'm not kidding, this happened multiple times. And then, same people would go, and I, I'd be in a meeting with them and, and Pastor Rich Burkle. And Pastor Rich would say something, I th- in my opinion, like four times as offensive. And they would say, oh, Rich, thank you. Thank you for that. And I just look at them and I look at Rich and the other staff and I would talk about, what does this guy have? At first we thought it was this thing we called the Burkle laugh. Because what Rich would do is he would say something offensive like, you're a terrible parent. <laughs> and he'd do this laugh. <laughs> and so we thought, maybe I need, I, thought, I need to have the Bennett laugh. And so I'd, you know, I'd start doing this. I'd say, yeah, so you're a terrible parent. <laughs> and it just sounded even worse and even more offensive. It wasn't the laugh, right? It was the Burkle love. There's a context of relationship that he had with these people that he was talking to. And it wasn't, this, this confrontation of sin wasn't the first conversation he'd had with him. There was a foundation of a loving relationship. How do I effectively care for brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with sin? It begins by loving them. A love that's manifested through sacrificial conduct and action as I've cared for them before. Number two, second thing we see here. Number two, I pursue real relationships with them. So I think about caring for my brothers and sisters who struggle with sin. Again, that's all of us. It means that I've, I have to pursue real relationships with them. Look at the text here. Let's look at the text that we're actually looking at, verses 16 and 17. Here's what, here's what John writes. He says, uh, if, if anyone sees his brother. Now, what does that word see imply? The word see implies, first of all, that a real relationship exists, okay? Uh, What I know about their lives, the sin that I see, is not something that I've heard through gossip. It's not some inference. It's not, well, I I see they wear certain types of clothing, or I I see they kind of hang around certain types of people, and so I kind of know some things are probably struggling with them, so I'm going to talk about them with that. No, see implies intimacy. We're in this relationship, and because we're in this relationship— I can have the ability to talk with them about things. Now understand this. This type of relationship in which I can see, not just hear about, not just judge, not prejudge, but a relationship in which I can see the struggles that a brother or sister has, it doesn't come by chance. Right? This kind of relationship doesn't happen by by happenstance. What it means is that I've committed to this, to this local body and these believers that exist within that local body, and there's this relational obligation I have to care for them so that I can see what's taking place in their life. Earlier in the, the baptismal service, I read a little bit from Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that, that Jesus is our peace. He's made us both one. I, I want you to listen how he describes the church. And if I can read these words and you say, boy, that sounds really foreign to my experience. The burden lies upon you and me to, to fix that. Here's what he says. Again, Christ is our peace. He made us both one. He's talking about Jew and Gentile there, but it applies to us as well. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, 
so making peace, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. He goes on and says, we're no longer strangers and aliens. We're all members of the same household, of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what Paul envisions is taking place within the church. That we, we believe this truth that Jesus Christ has reconciled us all to God, and now on the basis of that truth, we're growing closer together so that this, this group is not just a bunch of individual people worshiping God, but this, this group is a, a, a temple. Each of us are part of, of one another, of, of the same body, and it's within the context of this body that, that worship of God is occurring And as I find out more about God, you're finding out more about God. And as you find out more about what it means to be in a relationship with God, I'm discovering that through you as well. It's this this whole temple as we learn about the breadth and depth and height and length of the glory of God. Now, if you would say, man, I, I don't really feel that way about my church. And you would say, and the problem lies with everybody else. Let me suggest you haven't really understood what John has been saying as he's gone through 1 John. The obligation to pursue true relationship is not his responsibility or her responsibility. The responsibility to pursue real relationships is on me, right? If I'm going to effectively care for my brothers and sisters in Christ as they struggle with sin, I have to be pursuing real relationship. There has to be a context for conversations about deep spiritual things that exist because I've pursued relationship. I was probably about 20, I don't know, 23, 24 years old whenever a guy contacted me and said he wanted to, to have some some uh, marriage counseling with me. He wanted to come in and talk with me about his marriage. And uh, to me, the, I mean, the guy seemed like he was, he was ancient. He was twice my age. He was in his 40s or something. I was like, boy, I don't know. And it's very intimidating. He said, well, I, I want to come and talk to you about my marriage, get some marriage advice. And I was like, well, I will take my, you know, year and a half of marriage experience and we'll do this thing. So he comes and he sits down. And he says, well, well Daniel, uh, I need some advice. I said, okay, I'm I'm ready. So, well, I need to know, uh, do you think that I should read the Bible with my wife? I'm thinking, I got this. I know the answer to this one, but, but make it look hard. You know, I do. I, I do think that would be a good idea. Let's do that. Let's read the Bible with your wife. He goes, okay, that's what I thought. I'm thinking, I'm done. He goes, well, so here's, here's why. Um, my wife struggles with a lot of sins, and I need you to tell me what Bible verses to take her to to help her get over those things. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this just got a lot harder. <laughs> you see, a real relationship didn't exist in, in that marriage. He didn't feel the, the freedom to talk with his wife about spiritual things. And his, the only desire he had now to talk to his wife about spiritual things is that some of the things that she was doing were kind of bugging him, and he wanted her to cut it out. 
when it comes to our relationships with one another, one another in, this, in this body, there should be depth of relationship in which we've talked with one another about, about deep spiritual things, about the things that excite us, that disappoint us, the things we're struggling with, so that as we need to talk about some more difficult things, there's already the context for that to take place. You know, I, I just encourage you. There are probably many people in this, this church that you have um, the level of relationship with where you feel comfortable talking about what a great postseason the Cowboys are going to have. I know that's on everyone's lips. They just love talking about that. and You want to talk about football. And Let me just encourage you with this. Let me encourage you to do some things in your conversations with one another to, to take it to the next level. How, how do you do that? Well, you begin by asking lots of questions. Become a great question asker. Find out the things that your brothers and sisters in Christ are are really the things that excite them, and then ask a bunch of questions about it, and then listen. Listen to the answers. Listen to how they word even answers to very simple questions. A few months ago, Whitney and I were were walking past a couple uh, that um, we know from outside the church, and I said, hi, how you doing? They said, eh, good. Just like, eh, good. Could have kept on walking. Instead, we just stopped and we said, hey, um, what, what do you mean by that? We had no depth of relationship. We knew each other just very, very casually. But we just stopped and asked a deeper question. What, what do you mean by that? That led to just a really neat conversation. And in fact, I got an email the next day. Hey, thanks so much for caring about us enough to, to ask us a follow-up question. Pursue real relationships. Pursue depth of relationships. Force your conversation not in an awkward way, but in a real way to, to truly find out about what's going on in other people's lives and listen as you think about pursuing real relationships in this church. So this word sees, as we think about pursuing real relationship, it means that, uh, it means that relationship exists, and it also means, I, I believe this, when he says, um, if anyone sees his brother, I, I think it narrows our responsibility. In other words, I'm not responsible for every Christian throughout the world and, and all the things that they're struggling with in the same way that I'm responsible for the people that God has brought me into relationship with here at Bethany Community Church. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I think that means that there's a special responsibility I have to encourage the people who worship with me on a weekly basis. So, I pursue real relationships. Number three, number three, I don't ignore sin that I see in their lives. So in the context of this relationship, here's what John is describing. He says, okay, you, you're there in your relationship with your brother. You, you, uh, then you see your brother, and you see your brother doing what? He says committing a sin, and literally that, that means sinning a sin. So I don't hear about it. It's not a area of gossip. It's something I actually experientially know to be true in my brother's life or sister's life. And I see them sinning a sin, committing this sin. You say, well, hold on. What, what's this next part of verse 16? What kind of sin is this? It says, a sin not leading to death. What in the world is that phrase, not leading to death? What is a sin unto death? And in fact, later in verse 16, it says, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. Uh, then he says in verse 17, there is sin that does not lead to death. What is, 
What is the deal here? What is John getting at? What's the sin that leads to death? What's the sin that doesn't, doesn't lead to death? There have been several, well, let me just say this first of all. Um, I'll say those words. I'm not totally sure, okay? What we do know, a couple things. We know, first of all, that John knew what he was talking about, and his audience would have known what he meant by this phrase, sin unto death, and a sin not unto death. And what we also know is that even though, even though some aspects of what John is saying here, to, to me, aren't entirely clear, remember this, as, as we get into some of the things that you could mean here, keep in mind the big picture. What's the big picture again? We need to pray for each other. So don't, as we, as we struggle with maybe some of the specifics here, don't forget the big picture. We need to be praying for each other as we struggle with sin. So here's, here's a couple things that some people have, have speculated that, that John means here as he says, sin unto death. Some people have speculated, well, perhaps John is talking about categories of sin, okay? So you have, like, this category over here, and it's the, the really bad sins. It's the sins unto death. Maybe it's, it's murder or adultery or, 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 or some sorts of theft or you know, these are the really bad sins, the sins unto death. And then over here you have the sins that are not unto death. So he's kind of creating these, these categories or maybe a hierarchy. Here are the really, really bad sins, and then you kind of go bad, 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 and then not so bad, minor, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Now, I think it's true that, that some sins affect us differently, but the idea that there are categories of sins doesn't seem to be a very biblical way to understand sin, right? John, as he's talked about sin already, has, has talked about the person who minimizes sin as a person who doesn't rightly understand God's holiness. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And so God doesn't seem to make gradations of sin in terms of sins that could ultimately lead to our demise and those that could not. So I don't think that's a helpful way to understand what John is talking about here. Well, some people have said, okay, maybe it's not categories of sins, but maybe there's like one, one specific sin that if you do that, that's the sin unto death. Maybe if you're a believer and you commit this once, that maybe you physically die, or maybe you're an unbeliever and this is spiritual death. So maybe there's like one specific sin. Maybe it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that's what John is thinking about, and you do that sin, boom, that's a sin unto death. But I don't think that's a helpful way to understand what John is talking about here either, because remember as we talk about for example, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's in the context of Jesus' ministry, people who were um, around Jesus' ministry and had the ability to, through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, to see who Jesus was, and, and against all evidence to the contrary, they rejected that understanding. So I think that's something different. So what do I think it is? Here's how I think it's most helpful to understand what John's point is here. So, so stay, hopefully, hopefully you're still with me here. I think it's most helpful, as we think about all that's happen, happened in 1 John, I think it's most helpful to think not of what the sin is, but who is committing the sin. Okay? Remember, what is the book of 1 John about? The book of 1 John is about who's in relationship with God and who's not in relationship with God. And so as we've gone through 1 John... He's given us some attributes, some characteristics of the person who's in relationship with God, and he's given us some characteristics of the person who's not in relationship with God. So, for example, remember we talked about the love test. The person who's not in relationship with God fails the love test. You come to chapter 3, 
And he says this. He says we should love one another. We shouldn't be like Cain, who was the, the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised. The world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And listen to this. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life dwelling in him. So throughout John's letter, John has been drawing a contrast between those who have life and those who do not have eternal life, those who have death. The person who is in relationship with God, the person who's a Christian, has believed the truth about who Jesus is. Remember that the first thing they need to believe is that Jesus Christ is one who's dealt with sin. Now they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and so that's the person whose sin has been dealt with. Jesus Christ can intercede with them, can intercede for them to the Father and say, my, my blood has covered this sin. That's, that's the believer. That's the person who has eternal life. Then there's the other person who doesn't have life. They have death, this eternal spiritual death. That person is not covered by the blood of Christ. Christ is not that person's advocate. And so what I, what I think John is getting at is, here, is this. When he says, if anyone sees a brother sinning a sin, a person who's a Christian, they need to address that. The sin unto death is the sin that's committed by a person who has rejected Jesus Christ and does not have eternal life dwelling within them. It's a sin that's going to cause them to continue to, to pursue a path that's, that's further away from God. Now, there's, there's so much more we could say about that, but let me, just, let me just say this, a couple more things. What it means, how do, I, how do I effectively, remember the big question, how do I effectively care for a brother or sister who's struggling with sin? It, it means that when I see a brother who's sinning, a person who has eternal life dwelling within them, a person who's believed the truth about Jesus, who's lived a life that's, that's characterized generally by a desire to be obedient, by a life that loves other brothers, when I see that person committing a sin, I can't ignore it. When I see that person, a brother, a sister, committing a, a sin, I can't just pretend like it doesn't exist. I have a responsibility to, to do something about it. It's hard, but I must address it. It's not everyone I come into contact with. You know, I don't have a responsibility to go to every single person and say, hey, uh, I see this sin in your life. Let's talk about it. Earlier in the week, you know, gas prices were, were going down and and um, there was a terrible atrocity that took place as I was trying to get gas. Someone cut right in front of the line to me. And I don't have a responsibility to get out of my car. And I'm seeing some sin in your life. I just see real selfishness, real selfish heart, concerned about your soul. You know? I don't have a responsibility to do that. I have a responsibility for how my heart responds to them. It was great. But what do I, I have a responsibility to not ignore the sin that I see in my brother and sister's life got to do something. I love them. There's a real relationship that exists there. I see sin in their life and I can't ignore it. What do I do? Number four, I need to plead with God to grant life to them. I plead with, for God to grant life to them. Now, remember I said, how do we figure out what the sin unto death is? Uh, the reason I say that it's so important for us to understand that it's a believer, a person who has eternal life dwelling within them, is because of the context of what's just taken place. Remember, that's why I read verses 13 through 15. 
Remember what's happening in verses 13 through 15. He's talking about confident praying. And he says in verse 14, this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And now if I ask God to work within the heart of a believer, I know that's according to his will, and I know that he's going to do that. He's going to convict them of the Holy Spirit resides in that person. He's going to convict them of sin. I have no confidence. I don't know for sure how God is going to deal in an issue with a person who's not a believer struggling with sin. So we could talk, that's a different issue, but the issue here is I can have confidence that God will grant this request to me as I see a brother or sister in Christ struggling with sin. The future tense, by the way, when he says um, if uh, he shall pray, he shall ask, that's, that's a command. There's an expectation that you'll do it. There's an expectation that you're going to be proactive. And if you fail, listen to this, if, if you fail to be obedient to this command, to be in prayer for your brothers and sisters in Christ in the area of sin, it reveals one of two things, perhaps both. If you are not faithfully praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ as you see the presence of sin in their life, in your life, if you're not being faithful to pray for them, it either means, one, you don't believe that prayer is effective, and we've talked about that a few weeks ago, or two, and and this is also very concerning, it, it means that you don't believe that sin is that big of a deal. What does God's Word say about the presence of sin in our life? Hebrews chapter 3 says, Take care, brothers, this is Hebrews 3.12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There's a responsibility I have because I believe that prayer is effective and because I believe that sin is dangerous. There's a responsibility I have to be faithful in prayer to God for your life. There's a responsibility before God that you have to me and to the other people in this room to be pleading with God for their souls as well. The command that's promised here is is pretty awesome. It's, It's life. God will give him life, and I believe he's talking here about the eternal life that he's been describing in John, and so it's a spiritual, eternal life, and the death that's being contrasted there is a a spiritual death. There's certainly examples, biblical examples of how sin can lead to physical death. We think of Ananias and Sapphira, and the the death that resulted there as a result of their sin, and we think of 1 Corinthians 11, it describes a physical death, but, but here I believe that John is describing a spiritual death and a spiritual life, and you and I, by God's grace, have the ability to plead with God, and he will grant spiritual life to those who are struggling with sin. Okay, so how do I effectively care for my brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin? Well, I love them. I I pursue a real relationship with them. I don't ignore the sin that I see in their lives. I I plead for God to grant life for them. And then number five, I utilize biblical means to encourage them. I utilize biblical means to encourage them. Verse 16 again, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, when he's talking about the those, he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. And what this means is that 
you and I, as we pray for people, there's a very real possibility that we are going to be the instrument that God uses to answer the prayer that we're praying for that person. Isn't that kind of a cool thing to think about? As God gives us the ability to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, what needs to be happening is we need to be using those biblical means that God has given us to to be encouraging them. Now, how do you influence a, a person who's struggling with sin? Well, biblically, we see that we talk with them about it. We confront them with it. We say, hey, this is what I'm seeing at the right way, in the right way and at the right time. Now, what about this? Some people look at this verse and they say this. Hold on, Daniel. When it says, I do not say that one should pray for that, does that mean that there are some situations I shouldn't be praying for a person? Like, is it possible that I might be sinning that God would grant a person life? And, and no, I don't believe that's what John is saying. I think what John is saying is, look, there's a, there's, remember we're talking about confidence in prayer, and he's saying I, you can have confidence that God is going to, tr- to work within the heart of a believer to convict of sin. I'm not saying that the same will be true of a person who's rejected the gospel, the false teachers that he's describing here in 1 John 5. I think it deals with an area of lack of confidence. A few years ago, I had the very... Um, serious task of, of talking to a, a, a brother who I loved very dearly. We'd, have a, we'd had a context of relationship. We'd pursued real relationship, and, and he, was, he had uh, abandoned his family. Came to him. He wouldn't talk to me. wouldn't return my phone calls, and uh, finally I, I just kind of showed up one place where I knew he'd be, and I said, hey, um, brother, I, I love you. Love you. He said, he looked at me, and, and he, he had been in the church, and he, he, knew, uh, he knew a lot about how churches work. And, and he said, uh, Daniel, are, are you here to put me on church discipline? He says, are, are you here, would you really force me to, to leave the church? I said, I said, friend, no, because I have every confidence by God's grace, you're going to turn from this silliness, this foolishness, this sin. Sometimes I think church discipline is a very unfortunate word to describe the biblical means that we employ to, to encourage people to turn from sin. Church discipline is, is not a phrase that occurs in, in Scripture. The, 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 the phrases that occur in Scripture are, are more about, about con- confrontation and restoration. And so every, I have every confidence as I see a brother or sister in, in Christ struggling with sin that, that they're going to turn and, and, and be convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit and, and turn and, and walk with the Lord again. But as we do this, as we do this, we, we refrain. This is very important. As we deal with sin in other people's lives, it is absolutely vital because we love them that we refrain from unbiblical means of dealing with their sin. It means that I refrain from gossip. I'm not coming to you and saying, hey, uh, just want you to know that I am pleading with the Lord for my friend over there because we know all of the sin that he's struggling with, and so just pray for him like I am. That's not what we're doing. It means as we talk to the people that are in our lives, we see some issues of sin. It's not in a judgmental way. I had a, a young person approached me one time, and uh, he said, uh, Daniel, um, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm praying for you in your struggle with pride. Now, what do you say when a person says that? Because you can't say, oh, I'm not prideful, because you are. 
But what I, wanted, what I said I ultimately, well, yeah, I am struggling with that, but I don't think for the same reasons you think that I'm struggling with that. As we t- approach a person, it's not in a judgmental way. It's not in a way, hey, that I've, I've arrived spiritually and I'm here to bestow upon you my spirituality. It's, hey, as a fellow sinner, let's, let's pray for each other. Here's what I'm seeing, and, and I love you enough to not want this to be true of you, or to want this to not be true of you. It means that I address the real issue with scripture, with a soft answer, acknowledging my own sin with humility, and as, as, as Paul says in, in Galatians, with just a spirit of gentleness. If there was a spirit of gentleness that just pervaded our church as we talk about the struggles that we all go through, what a glorious thing that would be. Then finally, number six, I don't minimize sin in my life or theirs. Here's what John says in verse 17. He says, all wrongdoing is sin. And so he's, he's, he's trying to get, again, uh, to get away from the idea that maybe they're thinking about terms of categories of sins. He says, no, no, we've already acknowledged that all wrongdoing is sin. As we've talked about the characteristics of the unbeliever, the person who's rejected the gospel throughout 1 John, the characteristics of a person who's not in fellowship with God. They're, they're, they deny the truth. They aren't obedient. They don't love the brothers. Those, those three categories. I, I, he says, I'm not minimizing other sin. All wrongdoing is, is sin. All sin is, is lawlessness, we have seen already and as we've gone through 1 John. Instead, he says, there's a sin that, that um, doesn't, there's a sin that leads to death. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. In other words, as we think about the characteristics of those who are out of fellowship with God, he says, I'm confident even though those sins lead to death, there are some sin that, that's still present in the life of a believer that's, that's not going to lead to death because God's going to grant that person repentance. That's our confidence. Our confidence is not in our own righteousness, but our, our confidence is in the saving work of Jesus Christ. We don't believe that we can lose our salvation. In fact, as we've gone through First John, again, John is very confident that the people who are believers are not going to be guilty of this sin. The people who are guilty of this sin, of the sin that leads into death, this rejection of the gospel, this life that's characterized by that is, are, are people who weren't believers. First John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. First John 3.9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he, he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. As we think about not minimizing sin in my life or theirs, we're not minimizing sin. We're acknowledging that all wrongdoing is sin, but we're acknowledging at the same time that we believe we have a great God residing within us who is able to, to turn us from sin to pursuing life in him. As I mentioned earlier, um, it's, it's hard to convey to you what an awesome church you are. I get to see things more holistically, some, probably more than, than most people in the church, and it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty awesome. It's an amazing privilege. This church is so kind, too, and I believe that this kindness is a manifestation of that last test, that the love test. You are a very kind church. I cannot, and the other people who preach, 
Like we, in, a, in a sermon, we can't, as an illustration, talk about anything that we like, like a food that we like. We can't talk about some sort of physical need that we have because um, as sure as I am standing here, if I mentioned the t- a type of food that I like, my office would just be overrunning. Or if another speaker mentioned a food that they liked or a, a home repair need that they had, I mean, it would, they'd just be inundated. You guys are crazy nice. I could mention, I'm confident, I could mention a need right now I could mention need, and by the time I walked down those steps in just a few minutes, four people would have met the need. I'm confident of that, or have begun to met the need. So I rarely tell you things that I need, is my point. But let me tell you something this morning I need from you. I need you to do something for me. And I need you to do it for other people in this church as well, and you need me to do it for you. I need you to care about the sin that is in my life. And I need you to care about the sin that is in other people's life. Not in a judgmental way, not in a hypocritical way, not in some sort of nitpicking. I'm going to start examining your life with a microscope, but just simply saying, I am going to be in relationship with other people. And as I see things that are going to detract from experiencing the joy of God in their life, I, by God's grace, am committed to pray for that, to plead with God for them, and talk with them as I plead with God for them. I desperately need you to do that for me so that God will grant me life. Continue in his grace to do so. You need me to do it for you. Let's commit to do so together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus, and thank you for the life that we have in his name, and the, 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 the life that you've granted us through faith in your son Jesus. And we know that we are secure in you, and, and yet at the same time, we know that, that the temptation to fall away is, is, is there, and so we ask that you would continue to grant us life. I, I pray that you would help us to be very careful as we think through how to, to love each other in this very sensitive issue of sin. Help us to confront one another, not in a, a harsh way, not in a judgmental way, not in a holier-than-thou sort of way, but, but in a, a, a gentle, loving way desperate for your grace in our lives and theirs as well we love you we thank you for your son jesus who is our perfect advocate the the perfect righteousness we pray this in his name amen